You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange, the podcast of me, Sarah Raven, and my mate, Arthur Parkinson. But Arthur and I have agreed on the cooking shows. I'm going to do them on my own because he is not so passionate about food as he is about gardening. So today I am with two people who I admire hugely, and that's Sammy Tamimi and Tara Wigley. You probably all know and celebrate them already but Sammy wrote his cookbook with Yotam Jerusalem which took us all by storm I don't know when was it five six seven years ago and Tara joined the the Ottolenghi stable about the same sort of time and has worked with both Sammy and Yotam ever since and I just so passionately love their new book Falestin which is why I really wanted them to join us on the podcast to to tell us all about it. Welcome to both of you, Sammy and Tara. It's lovely to have you here. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you for having us. (laughs) I have to admit, a slight selfishness in wanting to do it now as well, because actually the book's been out for about a year now, hasn't it? Or nine months or so. For two years. It's about to to come up to its terrible two years birthday. Is it? How funny. Yeah. It was published in London about, well, quite literally a day before lockdown. (laughs) London London stopped. So, uh, so yeah, Yeah, yeah. it's bittersweet memories. But hopefully everyone was sitting at home cooking your food and ordering online. Exactly. <laughs> but anyway, I'm off I'm off to Jerusalem next week actually. Hopefully, COVID allowing, I'm off I'm off there next week with my family. And um there are so many inspiring stories in the book about Palestine and and about Jerusalem and about Israel and the old market, the Arabic market. And um so I just wanted to start perhaps with you telling us the background to the book and how you both came to work on it together. I'll just uh, go back to the Otolenghi. I, I started uh, the company with Yotam Otolenghi and Nambar in 2002. And now we have, the company have four stores and three restaurants. Uh, the first cookbook I did with Yotam was about, I think, 12 years ago, the Otolenghi, uh, the cookbook. Mm. And then the second book was eight years ago, which is Jerusalem. Two years ago, I took a, a venture with Tara and we did uh, uh, Palestine. Palestine is a more kind of uh, a venture of mine uh, with Tara without uh, Yotan this time. So, yeah. And it was just nice. It was nice to having, you know, it's, we kind of see it as the sister book to Jerusalem and thought that the market's ready to kind of look beyond the idea of just Middle Eastern food as being a kind of homogenous group and actually to zoom in on mm. on the food of Palestine and the people in the place and kind of what makes Palestinian food sort of Palestinian and, and who are the people who are making it. So that was that was it. And sort of Sammy wanting to tell. So it's not, you know, it's it's Sammy's story in part, but it's also the larger story of of Palestine. Yeah. And so tell us your story, your your childhood, Sammy growing up and and sort of the food that you had and why you became a chef? 
Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a, a kind of literally a, a foodie house, but, you know, not a, like a, the modern term of foodie. Mm. They, they were just totally obsessed with food and uh, uh, to show you, you know, affectionate and love, they feed you. And uh, this is the best way, I think, uh, to describe it. So I grew up in a house like that. And obviously, kind of, I um, inherited that. And I started cooking when I was quite literally 15 years, 16 years old. Right. I uh, joined in a, a hotel kitchen in West Jerusalem. I'm a self-taught chef. I started by learning other cuisines before I turned to Palestinian cooking. Although I was cooking all the time Palestinian at home, I didn't see that as something that I needed to learn. Although, you know, mem- my food memory is always to do with, you know, Palestinian and the food that my mom and grandma cooked, yeah. uh, which is a food that I also had at home. And Palestine came, I mean, the whole idea of making Palestine came just when we were st- started to work on Jerusalem with Yotam, and it triggered this kind of, thing on me that you know I would like to do one day a, a more kind of focused book on the Palestinian side where you know Jerusalem was kind of two sides of uh, the city the, the Israeli side and the Palestinian side uh, so yeah this is how it all kind of started and uh, Tara joined from the beginning because I think uh, it was really important for the whole project Tara kind of um, didn't know much about Palestinian cooking or Palestine and, you know, how things are kind of handled and uh, which, you know, it was quite interesting because Tara asked all the right questions and sometimes the kind of embarrassing questions that people don't tend to ask. And for somebody like me who grew up there, when you go back, things are obvious and you don't kind of question them. Yeah. Because, yeah, cause, yeah as, as Sammy's saying in a nice way, my ignorance was kind of turned to an advantage because I, like a lot of people, think that, you know, you, you can get intimidated by how little you know about a region and you don't want to ask a stupid question mm. um, and inadvertently cause offence. But I realised that's actually me knowing how, me having that feeling, unlike Sammy, that it, there is actually a useful thing because I think a cookbook can be such a useful way in for people who want to know more about a culture and a cuisine and a history of a place and it's much more accessible often than a kind of thick hardback sort of non-fiction book that might sit on your bookshelf and so yeah so, so Sammy in a nice way of saying that my ignorance sort of was turned to an advantage for for, for the general reader because this is very much a book for the home cook who doesn't live in in the region yeah and also as you say there's sort of sensitivity which is obviously so paralyzing really about the area and I, I love the um this section that you have about the two restaurateurs, which I read again actually last night, Alain Moussa and uh, how do you pronounce it, Dahir? Dahir, yeah. Yeah, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that, their sort of very different response to the sensitive and, and, and painful situation that they both find themselves in as restaurant owners. Yeah, it was so, so interesting meeting these two guys on separate nights and the first night we were in Haifa and... It was Ala Musa, and uh, he had these incredibly sort of hip, delicious, sort of modern restaurants. And we hung out with him for quite a while and had conversations and, and tried to kind of draw him on the link between sort of food and politics in the region. And he just absolutely wouldn't be drawn. For him, it was just all about the food. He was, this was his business. He was providing for his 
family. He he just was making great food for for whoever wanted to come through the door. And then the next night we went to Nazareth and met Dahir. And for him, food was nothing but politics and everything from the the people who came through the door and the music and the food choices. And and they both had such strong opinions and were so different. And as observers, you know, neither are right, neither are wrong. We're eating delicious food in both places, but they're both coming from a really different place. But yeah, it was it was super interesting. And and then and you also went and cooked in a refugee camp in Bethlehem, didn't you? Or or sort of joined a group cooking. I mean, I I loved that story as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Islam in in Aida refugee camp in Bethlehem was, uh, I mean, she's a, an amazing woman, and I I admire you know her strength. Uh, and she does it in such a humble way. I mean, she's got the, you know, a, a huge responsibility on her on her shoulders to provide, you know, education and for her kid, his her disabled kid, but also for the community. And she started by cooking for people, and then she moved into cooking with people, where you know she became well known that people came from all over the world to to join her classes, mm. and. Yeah, I mean, with all the kind of grim backdrop of, you know, living in a refugee camp and she wasn't born there and the facilities are really kind of limited, but she managed to do something really, really positive. And uh, we both, me, me and Tara, kind of uh, stand in front of this woman and you just feel so inspired by what she does. And I think also a cookbook again allows for that contradiction, as Sammy's just said, that you've got this this backdrop, which is really sobering and depressing, uh, li- you know, living, growing up in a refugee camp, and yet going and visiting and hanging out is not at all a depressing experience. So this kind of paradox sort of exists of, of people who are living good lives and they're very enterprising and they're entrepreneurs and they've got businesses. And she said herself that people come and visit and she does these tours and people are kind of surprised that people in a refugee camp have got mobile phones or Nike trainers and you know she's like these two things coexist and uh you know it's that contradiction that we're just seeing so much in the world the whole time at the moment yes and and it's it's a bit it's a bit like what I mentioned before where you know they showed um, love and affection uh, through food and this is a Mm. kind of a wonderful thing to do I mean she just kind of find a way to um connect with people through food yeah and the thing that really struck me in the section about her was there was this woman who was literally getting up every morning in the day and and focusing her day on her immediate sort of micro environment and her dream was to go to the coast and to sit on the beach but actually even this woman in her 40s was she had had never actually been to the seaside because of the whole permit thing so as you say that is such a sort of controlling force. And yet, I mean, I've been to Jerusalem only once, but just as you're both saying is when you sort of go into the old city, you just feel this incredible energy and just the most delicious food. In Jerusalem, I haven't travelled outside Jerusalem and I haven't been to Tel Aviv actually. And I've been to Hebron, but only, only there really in Palestine. But every time you come off the road, for me, was just completely exhilarating because the wildflowers are so absolutely extraordinary um, and the sort of anemone coronaries and fritillaries and things. But also when I was there, which was in March, there was this incredible 
endless vans full of these beautiful orange cauliflowers. And I know some of your favorite recipes, Sammy, are using the cauliflower, aren't they? Yeah, the, my my mum's uh, cauliflower and uh, cumin fritters, yeah. which are um, they're very simple, but they're also you know full of flavor, and it's a recipe that kind of um, provide comfort to a lot of people. I mean, not just Palestinian. I mean, we we include the recipe in Jerusalem eight years ago, and uh, people still kind of some people cook it on a weekly basis for the kids and themselves, and it's just. Um, really really kind of when you look at the ingredients kind of simple it, it's the same way as when we did the hassan eggs which is my father's eggs yes that lemon and spring onion which you know they don't that these recipes that don't ask for many ingredients no. and people are always kind of surprised because the end result when you start eating it is it's just kind of this menage of flavors in such a simple dish yeah Sammy always jokes that when we were putting the book together, I was he was he was saying that we needed to start the book with this uh, this recipe for these um, soft boiled eggs. His dad soft boiled eggs, and I was saying, Sammy, we don't need a we don't need a recipe for soft boiled eggs yeah. in our in our book. You know who's who's going to need to be told to do that? And and uh, you know, needless to say, it's now gone on to be the one of the most kind of viral and popular dishes <laughs> because of this revelation of what happens if you pair it with za'atar rather than always just salt and pepper and it's just so simple but just such a kind of penny drop moment for people and not just that but also I love the two touches in this very simple recipe one is that you must always rip the egg you must never you must never cut the egg and that's just I love that and like with mozzarella <laughs> I always try and rip it rather than cut it but also the olive oil the importance of the olive oil and obviously in this book olive oil is is the queen as well as the, ba- the different baking ovens and things but maybe one or other of you will, will just chat us through about the the incredible stories of the the olive tree and in Palestine, but also the importance of the quality of the oil. Dara, you, you met the, the guardian of the olive tree. Oh, yeah. The story oh, yeah. Because... oh yeah, when, when, when my husband and I first went to Palestine, I told him actually we were going on a culinary food tour, but in fact we were going there to do a marathon. But anyway, that's another story. <laughs> um, but then we did find ourselves sitting uh, sitting with the guardian of, of kind of one of the oldest olive trees in the region and and predictably, he'd made enough kind of stuff to find leaves, honestly, to feed probably 40 people. And sort of, and then, and then he wouldn't touch any himself. And Chris and I sat with him and he and we hung out for the afternoon and he was protecting the tree because there was a threat that the green line, which was, was marking the, the separation wall, was going to go through the tree. So his, he's sort of taken it upon himself to to guard it but again this thing of this kind of paradox of of kind of of worlds that I was referring to earlier like he, he was the most it was the most timeless scene where we, it could have been any time and and then as we left after this afternoon this sort of beautiful afternoon he was like keep in touch keep in touch look me up on Facebook <laughs> and it just struck me <laughs> but then, but you know that the the role of the the olive tree and the olive season and the olive oil again was such a thing for me to witness as an outsider, because as someone who's grown up in the UK in London, I just don't have that sort of relationship with food in terms of my identity. I just, I, it's just not part of of my of my core like that. And mm. and then going somewhere where the whole year is kind of based around the seasonality of you know the harvest and then the dish that results from 
from the picking of the olives and the making of the oil. So then you've got this chicken musakan, which yes. is one of Palestine's signature dishes, which uh, is just a beautiful, simple dish of roasted chicken, which has got lots of spices with these layered with these sumac onions that have been sweated down. And But then it's kind of all this olive oil, it's used to showcase it. And it's just, yeah, it's just so interesting to see the extent to which it is part of people's identity. And then also a big metaphor for for kind of land and protection because these olive trees are often being threatened and, yeah. and destroyed. So it just, it, I mean, just, you could just, there's so many ways you can look at, look at the olive tree. And will you tell us a little bit about Zaytun, which is, you know, how we can all buy this incredible bright green, intense Palestinian olive oil? Because, I mean, that's such a nice story too, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're a lovely bunch of people and they took on themselves a very kind of a not easy mission to import olive oil and other ingredients uh, from Palestine. And every year they face more and more issues, but they are really kind of determined to get the kind of the products to, to Europe and to England. It's an amazing olive oil. It's so uh, thick and grassy and mm. uh, robust. And you can get it in many places. I mean, uh, sous chef uh, stock it and you can get it also in mm. uh, oxfam and different different kind of uh, shops and Pl- planet organic have got it a lot at the moment yeah they also have it and if you find it just get a bottle it's not it's not always a cheap option but uh, you don't need a lot of it to kind of uh, enjoy the flavor of it yeah. it's a finishing oil isn't it you know you can just dip your bread in it or just drizzle it over it. it's not something you'd cook with but yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cheaper than a bottle of wine. <laughs> yeah. True, true. <laughs> um, and one recipe that I really I really didn't know, and I am determined to try this, which you drew my attention to, Sammy, was the rice with yogurt and, again, with the roasted cauliflower. Yeah. And th- th- I find it that sort of whole thing of the putting the cornflour in to stop the the separating of the of the dairy Will you just talk us through that a little bit? Because that's so that feels so non-Mediterranean in a way. In a way, yeah. I remember when we started talking about it, and uh, Tara was like, "It's a risotto." No, it's not a risotto. It's yes. a kind of a savory <laughs> a rice pudding. I mean, they cook with yogurt all over Palestine and the Middle East. And the way to to do it is, you know, slow kind of uh, simmering, and they always add a bit of corn flour or an egg yolk just to kind of keep it so it doesn't split. Yeah. The same dish can be also made with jameed, but, you know, we don't, we don't kishk, so it's a fermented uh, yogurt that uh, yes. it's very kind of heavily used in Palest- Palestinian and uh, Lebanese Jordanian cuisine, but we don't have that in um, here in the UK. Well, very, very difficult to find a good quality, and we didn't want to include anything that we can't really uh, go to the supermarket and get. Yeah, so mm-hmm. yogurt is an alternative to it. And uh, as a kid, I hated this dish because I I, <laughs> I found it because my mom used to do it with uh, jamid, and it had this really kind of strong yeah uh, flavor of the yogurt. But with the alternative of the yogurt, I I absolutely love it. And it's, it's not, again, it's a very very simple dish, mm. but. Um, it's bursting with, you know, flavors of, you know, the, the rice in the yogurt and the cauliflower with the garlic and the coriander seeds. And it sounds, that if, if Tara's working on this new comfort, but it, it sounds like sort of perfect winter comfort food, particularly with the topping of cauliflower, which I know you recommend. Mm. 
Mm. Yeah. And it sounds um, creamy. Oh, we're making it sound like a cauliflower cookbook, but there is another beautiful cauliflower <laughs> recipe, which is just simple ro- roast cauliflower, which sits on a bed of um, of charred, sort of simple aubergine, and then it's got this tomato salsa. But again, taking such familiar ingredients, yes. tomato, cauliflower, aubergine, and just the way these three things are handled. I mean, anyone who hasn't charred an aubergine on an open flame has a treat in store. Yeah. It's just so kind of smoky and delicious. So that's another one to look out for. And talking about readily available ingredients, I mean, particularly if they're organic, I'd love you to talk through the salmon skewers, which you did at a demo here last May. And um, they were a revelation to me because I'm sort of slightly wary of salmon these days, but we sourced some good salmon for you. And then these were just just such a kind of different way of using that thing that you find on every supermarket shelf. So I'd love you to chat us through that one. I mean, yeah, Palestinians don't eat salmon so much. (laughs) We wanted to do um, a dish that kind of... uh, slightly familiar to people and uh, with the fish that is available in the UK and, and, and Europe. With the use of, you know, the fish spice that we, we use in few recipes in, in Palestine, but we wanted to make something quite simple mm. and uh, it looks really amazing. People cook it all the time. because Yeah. It's so I'm slightly obsessed by this dish at the moment. And um, yeah, we've got this fish spice mix, as Sammy said, which is a mix of ground cardamom and ground cumin and paprika and turmeric so you can just have that sitting around and then these cubes are tossed with that plus some sumac the kind of tangy sumac Mm. and in the book we have it on skewers interspersed with uh, cherry tomatoes and onions that have been kind of softened but when I do it at home for sort of lunch today you can just do it as a fillet you don't need to you don't need to do the whole skewing thing Um, and then in the book we have it with a parsley oil that's kind of very simple, but I often have it with um, red shatter, which which cuts through the oily fish really beautifully. And shatter is another condiment that Sammy and I are keen to convert the world to. And you can either have green shatter or red shatter, depending on your chilies. Um, and it's a very quick kind of fermented chili chili paste. But that's beautiful with the with the salmon skewers as well. Will you tell us how to how to do that? Because the whole ferment thing is so crazy fashionable at the moment. It is. And I, I mean, I often don't ferment because I always think recipes say, you know, six months before you want to use something. But this is this is three days before you want to use your shutter. Uh, you finally slice 250 grams of either green or red chilies, of seeds and all. And then you pop them in a Tupperware with a tablespoon of table salt and give it a shake and then just leave them in your fridge for three days. Give them a shake if you want every day. And then you pop them in a food processor and blitz them up and then stir through three tablespoons of I use cider vinegar, but you could use white wine vinegar and a tablespoon of lemon. And then that's it. You put that into a jar and then seal it with olive oil so that it doesn't go off. Although it won't go off because you'll eat it before it would go off. (laughs) And then you just have it with everything. And you put the hashtag, let's shatter the world. And uh, (laughs) off we go. So in my fridge, I always have green and red. I've got red for for fish. And then I love green shatter with kind of morning, morning eggs. And so it's much milder, the green than the red. Well, I suppose it depends what chili no, you've no, used. No, the red, the, yeah, it depends on the chili, but yeah. I, I think the red, or the, almost the opposite. The red's got a oh. sort of sweetness and then the green's quite fresh and tangy. But it does ruin you for all other food. That come, that should be the warning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Your taste buds are burnt out after that. It's not always really spicy. Some, you know, the more, I think the more you leave it, the, the kind yeah. of milder it gets. And because you keep spooning... 
to, to, to eat and you add more olive oil to it. It kind oh, of yes, it turns yes. it into this yeah. kind of really um, yeah. lovely mild chili paste. Yeah. And do you always have that in your fridge too, Sammy? I do, I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have more the, the red chata because uh, I just love it with everything. I mean, literally with morning, lunch and dinner. Yeah. And it's on the cover of the, the US cover of Palestine has got one of my, I think, and also Sammy, but particularly because I'm salad crazy dishes, which is a little gem salad, which has got burnt aubergine yogurt and, and cucumbers that are kind of diced. And then again, you've got this red shatter drizzled and sort of dotted on top. So it looks lovely as well. Yes. No, I remember yeah. that one. And will you just explain a bit of why you want to bruise the cucumber? Because I've always sort of been slightly put off when the cucumber flesh goes a bit glassy. But you positively want that to happen, don't you, in this recipe? Yeah, I mean, you, you don't really need to do that. But, you know, we, we just find that, you know, when you slightly beat them, kind of they soak the flavor of all the herbs. Okay. And, but uh, you know, if you if you like your cucumbers to be kind of uh, crispy and you, you just leave it, just kind of cut it into cubes, and you don't have to beat them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's always it's always good to vent your. Uh... <laughs> I remember um, I've always beaten my pomegranates to get the seeds out, and then I was very firmly told off by someone that that was. A terrible thing to do because it bruises the flesh. Yeah. Do you beat? So pe- pe- people are divided, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. I definitely, I don't beat, but I certainly tap, tap. quite heavily with a okay. with a rolling pin, yeah. and then they just fall through my hands. Yeah. So exactly. I'd much rather that than painstakingly pick every. Yeah, seed, but yeah. Other opinions are available. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I would love maybe to finish with a couple of things. One is, would you talk about as somebody who. I set up my company based on seeds. I'd love you to talk about the Palestinian Seed Library because that, for me, is such an exciting thing. And then we could just round up with future plans for you both, really. Yeah. Vivian. Vivian is is an amazing um, person and she's also a good friend of ours. And she just uh, got in her head that, you know, uh, it started with, uh, I can't remember, it was like a... A Jedi watermelon. Oh, Yeah. Uh, because she remembered them as, a, as, you know, all her childhood, and then all of a sudden they disappeared, and she just kind of started this kind of journey of looking for the seeds, mm. and she went to this really old man, and she found in one of the drawers a couple of seeds, and she took them, and uh, this is her journey, the way it started, and then she decided that she's going to work with farmers, collect seeds, mainly fruit and vegetables that, kind of disappearing slightly from the markets and uh, make a, a seed library. And, mm. she, uh, you know, her, her role is quite important because what she does is go to little kind of in, uh, farmers and work with them to preserve these seeds and varieties of vegetables and fruit. Mm. And, they see, and they see, these seeds also work on different scales. So on one hand, as Sammy said, she's doing this big kind of, like practical, tangible work with farmers and and they're all really kind of seeing the effects of it. But she also does lots of work with kids and kind of touring her seed library to to kind of talk about seed as metaphor and something that seems so small when you plant it in the ground. You know, it seems seems laboured to kind of point out the metaphor, but it's just so true for kind of kids in in Palestine to to kind of to to see what can happen if you plant something and and it does all start with a seed and, and kind of watering it and nurturing it. So yeah, she's an awesome lady, and 
and uh, yeah, one of many inspiring women. Yeah, well, we were. that's really what this book is. I mean, not just about women, but a lot of inspiring women in Palestine. And and um, I read it from cover to cover, and actually have now twice, and and really couldn't more passionately recommend it as a book, which I hadn't realised is now about to be two years old. But, but there we are. Doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> well, this is the time time warp, isn't it? No one knows how long the last two no. years has been. And so, uh, so Tara, you're working on comfort, and so you're still very much in the sort of test kitchen and writing away. I am indeed, yes. No, there's another thing that you're working on, no? It's <laughs> a big secret yet. Well, it's not really a big secret. No, I'm, I'm so I'm, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing. A, I've got my own own sort of project as well, which is separate. Ah. But yes, working away, still writing about food. How exciting. Brilliant. Well, we look forward to that. And what about you, Sammy? What... Yeah, I'm doing quite a lot of consultancy at the moment and lots of charity. Yeah. I stopped working in um, the kitchen at Lengi and uh, uh, I just, you know, wanted to do something slightly different. So yeah, the the future is bright. Oh, good. But what with uh, with other restaurants and other menus and... and... Uh, yeah, with other people yeah. and... Um, I just do uh, small kind of uh, consultancies Brilliant. and do them in my own time. So there's yeah. no kind of pressure. I just choose what I want to do and, yeah. and do it. Fantastic. And so Falestin is out in paperback imminently. No, there's not a new edition. I oh, think it, okay. it's just, you know, it's just available in its hardback glory forevermore. Good. With the lovely olives all over the front. But then hopefully you use it so much that the spine falls off and it becomes paperback, which happens to all my favourite books. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, it was lovely to talk to you both. And thank you so much for joining us. Lovely to chat, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for listening. Next week, Sarah is guest interviewing a mutual friend of ours. She's the queen of polka dots, pink roses and bumblebees, all sponged onto the most gorgeous, robust pottery you could ever hope to lay your hands on. She's also my ex-boss. It's Emma Bridgewater. So join Sarah and Emma then for a wonderful chat about Emma and her gardening life and inspiration. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahoven.com.